Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Daryl Bricker is the president of Ipsos Global Public Affairs, and he joins me on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. And Ipsos, just uh, for global news, just uh, completed a poll on Ontario's views about the June 7th election. Daryl, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me on. So there's all this thinking that uh, Doug Ford, with the bombastic style and the idea that he's a populist, and some people making the Ford um, Trump comparison, which I don't think is valid, but there was a lot of talk that, you know, a uh, Ford is going to be the fourth time the conservatives and the third in succession that they self destruct. Doesn't look like it's going to turn out that way, does it? Well, not so far, but I mean, you know, campaigns matter, and, and we'll, we'll see what happens when we get into May and things really uh, start to heat up. But so far, uh, it looks like he's maintaining the lead that we've been seeing for them over the last while. In fact, uh, uh, completely stable since uh, since the last time we were in field, prior to Doug Ford being the uh, appointed the leader of the party. So they are at 39%, and is it roughly around 40 that you're looking at majority government territory? Well, it, it all depends on where it's spread. Uh, for the Conservatives, or actually for any political party, the real question is, how are you doing in the 905? Uh, because that's where the bulk of the seats are that are up for grabs. So when you take a look at uh, the 905, the Tories have the same lead, basically, that they have province-wide. So that's the reason that they look like they'd be pushing up against a majority. And 905 is outside the city of Toronto proper. Right. Uh, the Liberals at 32% and the on- and Ontario NDP at 25%. Is there any hope at all for either of them? Oh, I think there is. I mean, uh, as we get into the campaign and you see things start to heat up, in fact, you you see the Premier is going to try and uh, change the game a little bit uh, starting on Monday with a speech from the throne and they'll follow that up with a budget. So, you know, they're going to try and get another set of issues on the agenda. Uh, The person who seems to be having the hardest time getting any notice right now, though, is... uh, your guest that's going to be up at the end of the hour, which is Andrew Horvath in the NDP. Although she's the preferred premier, uh, clearly, uh, among most people in the province of Ontario, seems like her coattails aren't long enough to bring up, bring up her party. Yeah, I wanted to ask her why she's been essentially absent for the last year. There hasn't been very much uh, in the way of appearances and uh, high-profile uh, appearances by Andrea Horvath. And I, I would have thought, given everything that's happened particularly over the last three months, you would, if you were a party leader, be taking advantage of that and diving in it head first. Well, particularly since there's such an opportunity here. I mean, she is the preferred premier in the province, mm-hmm. so people do want to hear from her. But the other thing is that this is really turning into quite a left-right election, and the liberals are going to be absolutely ruthless in terms of going after Doug Ford and, and the other way around. Uh, there is an opportunity here for uh, Andrew Horvath to do to the Liberal Party what the liberals have done consistently to the NDP, which is to say, look, uh, these guys uh, aren't going to be able to beat the Conservatives. We're the only people who can do it. And to be really aggressive about that point of view, because it looks like right now what's happening is the opposition to Doug Ford is lining up behind the Liberals. If that happens, it's very hard for Andrew Horvath and the NDP to move up. Um, How many people in this province would remember well 1990 to 1995? The only other time there were, or the only time there was not only other, but only time there was an NDP government, and Mr. Ray's arguably, at least from my perspective, catastrophic five years in which he doubled the debt that the province accrued between 1867 and, and 1995. 
Um, are people in the in, in Ontario uh, are memories now sufficiently fogged about 1990 to 1995 that they would be saying, yeah, maybe? Well, I think there's enough there from 1990 to uh, to make people at least have a little bit of a pause. But I don't think it's enough for them, particularly progressive voters. Remember, we're not talking about the overall province here. Yeah. We're talking about the progressive coalition, which, by the way, has become more progressive, more left uh, since 1990. And this is the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, somebody has to unite that group because divided the Conservatives win. So the real opportunity for Andrew Horvath is to unite them. And I don't believe that that group of people is sitting around uh, regretting that much about Bob Ray in, in, in 1990 to 1995. Okay, it's just me that has the shakes. Well, the people who are on the other side <laughs> of the agenda who are consolidated around uh, Doug Ford. And, 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 and But that's ultimately the, the race, Roy. The, the real race is can somebody consolidate uh, the uh, the progressive vote? And if it remains split, it becomes very easy for Doug Ford to win. Daryl, tell me this. Do you think that over the next, and, and we're looking at a federal election in not not too long from now, next year, next fall, is is the is the political climate or the social climate such that it's going to be invariably, whether it's uh, federal, provincial, whether it's the United States, whether it's uh, Western Europe, is it is it is it right versus left as opposed to um, sort of aiming for the middle? Is it now going to be incumbent on political parties to choose one of the two uh, spectrums? Well, that's basically what's happening. And I don't know that it's so much left versus right. I mean, particularly the populace in, uh, in, in Europe and, and what you saw in the United States, it's less about left and right and more about um, people being portrayed as kind of the elite mm-hmm. versus the other group of the population. Uh, so that's what we're seeing in, in, in other countries. And it tends to be less about, um, uh, um, tends to be less about, things like, for example, strictly economics and taxes, and more about this sense of, uh, uh, you know, one group of people feeling like they've got a, uh, an agenda, and this is the people who are on the progressive side of the, uh, of the equation, uh, a really aggressive agenda about the type of power structure that they want to see in, in, in a particular jurisdiction, in this instance, in, in Ontario. So it's all about equity and climate and all sorts of things like that. And then you've got another group of people saying, hey, I don't feel that that's what my government should be focusing on. Uh, they're looking at these sort, these other uh, the people who are on the progressive side of the agenda as basically being a bunch of scolds, and and uh, they're tired of being scolded. So what you're seeing is the conservatives coming around a guy like Doug Ford. So that's why when you get into the situation where the liberals and the NDP are going to be attacking Ford the way that they will attack him, which is you know being you know not educated enough, not uh, you know not. Uh, uh, somebody who understands what this new progressive agenda should be for the province, that's actually manna from heaven for the other side. But what has really evaporated in all of this is the uh, the middle. That old, and John Ibbotson and I called them the Laurentian elite, that idea that they have this kind of governing consensus where there's the liberals and the conservatives, and sure they swap back and forth every once in a while, but the difference between them isn't that big. They just have a you know a different colored logo. That that view of Canadian politics, that perspective on Canadian politics has exploded. And it, it doesn't exist in the same degree that it used to. Yeah, and there is no lack of enthusiasm, no lack of opinion, no lack of decision to make your opinion known, at least among the people I speak to on this program and people I speak to personally. They have a very strong view of where we should be going and where things are correct and where things are incorrect, and they want they want to get at it. They want to get out into the uh, into the election. They want to vote. 
And the, and the point on that, Roy, is it's not strictly economics. Most of this is really about culture. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of province that you want to have. You have one group of people that tends to be, you know, better educated, more youthful, uh, you know, smaller families. They live downtown. That group of people versus the people who live in the suburbs and the rest of the province. And that's where the divisions are taking place. And the people in the suburbs and the province basically have a different view of how the world should operate. And this war over what kind of culture you want to have in this province uh, is really what this is all about. And that's a very different battle than even you were having back in 1990. You know, and things are being said, Daryl, that we wouldn't have expected to be hearing uh, but they're being said, they're being set out in the open, they're being uh, reported on internationally. I looked at a Reuters story this morning, uh, facing far-right challenge, a minister in Germany, a minister says Islam does not believe, uh, does not belong in Germany. So you have, you have uh, ministers in federal governments making statements such as that, because they find it's necessary for them to make that statement if they want to hold on to seats in specific regions in their country. So... The paradigm shifted, hasn't it? Well, in and, and, and places like in Europe, though, and this is the, the, what is really different about Canada and this whole debate. The debate in Canada tends not to be over that. So if you go out and, and, and look at public opinion in places like, for example, Germany or Sweden or the UK or France, there's this whole um, uh, backlash to cultural change driven by immigration. That's, that's taking place there. Some of it is around the issue of Islam, but some of, them is, some of it is just around the idea of change. You know, you go out to, you live in the Midlands and you go out to the pub and, you know, everybody pulling a pint is Polish, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so this, the sense that there's this cultural change that people are pushing back against. In Canada, it's not so much that. So, for example, somebody like Doug Ford, his reaction to immigrants would not be parallel to what Nigel Farage's would be in in uh, in the UK or Donald Trump's would be in the United States. In fact, immigration really doesn't even play into the into the dispute. It's really more about this kind of culture, this progressive type of agenda uh, that uh, a lot of people support in the province of Ontario, and then the people who are reacting to it. So it's going to be a very interesting June the seventh, and on the evening of June the seventh, we'll all be glued to find out what's going on. Of course, we'll know already because Ipsos will have told us. No. Uh, well, well, we'll hope to do the best job that we can, and I'll look forward to uh, being on Global TV that night. Well, that's great, and I'll look forward to speaking with you, uh, hopefully, on the on the next day. Daryl, thank you so much. It's always great speaking with you. My pleasure, Roy. Take Thanks care. a lot. Daryl Bricker is the president and the CEO of uh, Ipsos Global Public Affairs. They did the poll for Global News. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The interview with Andrea Horvath who is, of course, the leader of the Ontario NDP, and uh, as Daryl Bricker told us from Ipsos at the top of the hour, when it comes to Ontarians deciding who they would like as premier, most like as premier, Andrea Orvath is first at 41%, and uh, then it's Doug Ford at 36%, and Kathleen Wynne is at 23%. So maybe, uh, Andrea, you should just be running uh, the election. should just be for the premier. Well, first of all, it's nice to talk to you, Roy. It's been a little while. It has been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. It's nice to talk to you. Good Thank to you for inviting you. me on your show. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, tell us, please, uh, what you announced this morning. Uh, if you're elected, Ontario receives a universal health care plan, which would cover drug costs and dental care. And then tell us where the money would come from with this province sure. in such terrible fiscal shape, thanks to the Wynn Liberals. 
Well, sure. I mean, for, first and foremost, I think it's important to know that um, in terms of employees in this province, about two-thirds are already covered by their employer benefits plans. Uh, our plan is a two-pronged approach, which will uh, cover off the other one-third of workers, as well as uh, folks who are uh, low-income people, folks who are, for example, uh, um, uh, retirees who don't have any benefits, uh, folks who uh, are um, working but um, you know working at jobs that don't currently provide benefits. We're going to uh, we're going to provide uh, basically dental like the basic dental services for everyone. Um, and you know when when uh, when we're completely com- finished with our platform, which we're putting the final touches on now, uh, when it comes to the second part of your question around the, the fiscal piece, uh, we will have a fully costed plan. Uh, that has a responsible, uh, you know, fiscal uh, plan that's attached to it. So it'll be a fully costed platform with a responsible fiscal plan. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, we know that uh, that things are um, challenging in the province, but what we believe is that people need more help, not less, uh, to build a good life here. We've seen too many folks now for years who are just struggling to, uh, you know, to hold it together. Are you go- are you going to use are you going to use the words revenue neutral? Uh, no, what I'm what I'm going to say is that our plan will be costed and that it will absolutely be responsible. Okay, now let me talk about a couple of other things to you. I spoke with Daryl Bricker earlier, as I mentioned. The parameters of Ontario's election campaign have changed dramatically. The PCs led by Doug Ford uh, no longer... Uh, what was his name? This is what happens. Yeah. Ipsos, the Ipsos <laughs> polls suggest that there may be a PC majority government so where do you realistically consider the Ontario New Democrats to be positioned now? And who concerns you more, Ford or Wynn? And just give me a straight answer on that. Uh, well, you know, a straight answer is I think we're positioned to win this campaign. I'm looking forward to taking the reins of the province. And I think this is a an opportunity for change for the better in Ontario. Look, we don't have to keep choosing uh, between bad and worse. We don't have to keep choosing between options like Kathleen Wynne uh, and Doug Ford. I mean, there is another choice here, and New Democrats. But you're not are, resonating, Andrea. You're not resonating with the uh, the party. You are, but the, you are, but the party well, isn't, according to the poll. Well, and that's and that's what I believe is the opportunity that we have to show people that we can make change for the better in Ontario. It doesn't have to be more cuts uh, than what Kathleen has uh, provided, more privatization uh, than what the Liberals have put in place. Uh, we can take a different path. And I'm excited to show does that, what that path does is. that path you include what? does and that you know path include no more taxes? You know what? Uh, certainly for low income folks, for for middle class families, they need to be protected. Our plan will protect uh, middle class families and folks that are struggling. Absolutely, that's definitely. I'm not sure what that. Plan. You know, I never know what protect means in the political means context. They're not. They're not going to see their life become less affordable. They're not going to see okay. more of a tax burden on on them. Because okay, you'd have to let me. You have they, to let me get through a bunch of questions with you because we only got okay. five minutes left. Is we, this like speed dating? Oh. <laughs> What's that? Is it, is it like speed dating? Like exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Look, we, we have two NDP governments in the West, in Alberta and British Columbia. They're at each other's throats metaphorically over the issue of the pipeline. Which do you side with on the issue of the Trans Mountain Pipeline extension? The Alberta Premier, Notley, who's threatened she may shut the spigot for Alberta oil destined for British Columbia? Or do you, s- do you side with Premier Horgan? who may, I don't know if he's going to make that happen as far as uh, Premier Notley is concerned. 
And what's your thinking about, about pipelines? Should we have Energy East going through Ontario, or do we want to have more, do you want to have the oil rolling through on rail cars and trucks? What's your thinking on, 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 the, on the BC, Alberta issue, and then on how we transport the oil? Um, okay, so on the, on the first part of the question, uh, I know that uh, uh, Brian and, um, or rather John and Rachel, are very, uh, very much in a bit of a battle around uh, the pipeline issue. Uh, all, all I can say is that it's up to those two premiers to respond to the needs of their two provinces and hammer out some kind of solution. When it comes to Ontario, I've said very clearly many times on the record, uh, and it's the position of my party, uh, is that any kind of um, pipeline, any kind of initiative of that nature would be required to go through an environmental assessment process at the provincial level uh, before it could be approved in Ontario. That's the position that we've had for some time and it's really about making sure uh, that the, the, the safety and the interests of uh, Ontario uh, people is, uh, is taken seriously and, and that uh, can only be done with a, a process that's, um, that's you know, sanctioned and uh, rigorous uh, from uh, our provincial perspective. Okay, so would you be siding with Energy East or not? Well, again, what I, I, I don't think it's saying siding one way or the other. What I'm saying oh. is we would do our own due diligence as a province. No, but do, do you see? A, do you see? A, let me put it this way: Then, do you see a need for a pipeline like Energy East when you know that it's traveling through the province on on rail and on trucks, right? Well, I mean, again, uh, I, it's not a matter for me of a need. Okay, or so not we're not going to get an answer. We're not going to. We're not going to be able to get how, the answer on that. It's eh? a matter of how we are going to be responsible uh, to make sure that any kind of transportation of of uh, raw raw resources or oil uh, or gas or anything uh, is ensured to be safe. Uh, and the way we do that is through a provincial environmental assessment process. Okay, some people might be saying I'm a little too rude and pushy, but you've known me for a long time. We go way back, Roy. Jagmeet Singh was the deputy leader. I'm going to ask you about what you're going to do in the province, but I have to ask you about this question. Or ask you this question. He was the deputy leader of your party from 2015 to 2017, now the leader of the National New Democratic Party, making headlines over his attendance of Sikh independence rallies or uh, separatist rallies, some would say. There's now a, a headline story on Global News uh, .ca. Jagmeet Singh wants Canada to declare anti-Sikh violence in India during the 1980s to be a genocide. I won't ask you to comment on that, but I will ask you to tell me, please, were there any issues with Mr. Singh? Did you have any concerns about his, his, uh, his interests and his passions when he was your deputy leader? And that was in 2015 when he actually attended that conference or that, 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 that event in San Francisco. Uh, well, in fact, Jagmeet has been uh, speaking to crowds on issues of uh, of genocide and of human rights violations and uh, all kinds of those kinds of topics for many, many years. I mean, it's one of his passions and not just uh, when it comes to the Sikh community. I mean, he's spoken out on the Tamil community, for example. He's spoken out on, uh, you know, on all kinds of other uh, human rights issues worldwide. And so I wasn't unaware uh, that that was one of his passions. I wasn't unaware that he had been invited by many, many different uh, organizations and, you know, plenaries and conferences uh, around the world, here across Canada and around the world. And so, I mean, the specifics of, of his remarks and all of that stuff, that was kind of not part of 
his work as an MPP. It was more his work as a, a social uh, activist and as a, a human rights activist on the international stage. So we have a minute and 10 seconds left. It's all yours. Tell our listeners uh, across Canada, some may come back to vote. Um, do we have absentee ballots? I guess so, eh? Anyway, tell our listeners across Ontario for sure why they should vote Andrea Horvath and New Democratic Party on the 7th of June. Well, you know what, Roy, for, for some time now, people have been told uh, that they have to settle. They have to settle between uh, liberals and conservatives, and that's what's been going on for a long time, and it's just made life harder and harder uh, for everyday folks. Uh, and we don't see any real improvement in the, and where people stand, and, and we don't think it has to be that way. We think it can be much, much better. And that's why New Democrats are offering a campaign uh, and a platform that's built on hope that you can actually have, uh, you know, an electricity system that operates in the interest of the many, okay. not just the few shareholders, that you can have a healthcare system and hospitals where you're not lined up in hallways on gurneys, okay. uh, where we don't have more cuts and more privatization, where there's actually change for the better in Ontario. Andrea, that's I do have to ask you one more question. There's some issues uh, raised by the Bay Observer about problems in your constituency offices with harassment and people leaving and being fired. Is that cleared up? Uh, well, uh, as you know, Roy, there's a there's a you know human resources process that uh, uh, that we go through, yeah. and I, I'm not in a position to be able to speak to human resources issues. And I'm out of time. Good talking to you again, and I hope we can talk before the seventh uh, of June. Thank you so much, Roy. It was my pleasure. Take care. Take care. Andrea Horvath. I knew her when she was a city councillor in Hamilton. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Joining me on the show, Tony Bernardo, the executive director of the CSSA, Canadian Sports Shooting Association. Have I got that right? Yes, you do. And, hey, Tony, how are you? Hi, Roy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to hear that. Good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Well, on the air, it's been a while. Off the air, it's been like 24 hours. Ed, <laughs> Ber- Ed Berlou is a criminal lawyer. We've talked to him many times on this program, and uh, Ed has represented uh, the clients, and uh, his clients have been fe- featured in national news stories that involved using guns to protect self, property, and, uh, and, and family. And maybe the most famous case was uh, Ian Thompson in southwestern Ontario, whose house was being firebombed by five individuals who threatened to kill him, and Mr. Thompson fired over their heads, and he faced criminal charges, and Pretty nasty situation he was, he was he was facing. Mr. Berlou took care of that with the Crown Attorneys. How are you, Ed? I'm doing well. I'm up here on my farm enjoying a great sunny day. Excellent. So what we have time now for, because we were talking pipelines, we'll have three minutes here, then we're going to take a break, and we'll talk some more, and I'll tell the studio, move our 3.30 guest to 3.45, please. So, that done. Uh, gun ownership is about to become controversial again in this country. Tony, as the federal liberals are about to wind up the debate and piggyback it perhaps on the horrific Florida high school shooting. What's this, how does the CSA, CSSA uh, view what's likely to happen as far as gun ownership in, in Canada is concerned, or what the government may try to put in place? Well, we, we don't think that what's going to be happening this week will be particularly alarming, Roy. This, this legislation that the government's about to introduce actually started a long time ago. It was back even last spring they were saying it will be out in several more weeks. So specifically, it's not geared to the Lakeland shooting in Florida. 
But that said, I mean, we always have to be vigilant, and we never really know what's in that legislation until we actually see it. Mm -hmm. So you're not particularly concerned, but wait and see. Yeah, exactly. We'll know more on Monday or Tuesday of this week. Uh, That's when they are set to table it. Uh, part, Part of the reason that we believe it's not going to be too terribly contentious is because they only have a year to put it through before we're into an election. Yeah. Tony, what about the uh, situation in the United States where now some retailers, Dick's Sporting Goods is a national huge, huge chain, they've made it uh, mandatory to be 21 years of age before you can buy a firearm there. Their CEO has said that it's going to cost them financially. A bankruptcy expert we'll be talking to before the end of the hour says they could be facing bankruptcy. Yet I saw a story in the Washington Post this morning which suggests that uh, Dick's is not doing as badly as they thought they would, but they're not in great shape. So is that directly traceable to the changes in, in, in their gun sales policy? And do you believe that in the United States, you work very closely with, the, with, with, with American gun owners, is, is the whole picture of gun ownership in the United States about to change dramatically? I don't think it is. Um, I, I think that the students um, are, myself, I think they're, they're trying to put forward as much of their opinion as they can, but quite frankly, the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is very, very clear. In regards to Dick Sporting Goods, well, I mean, this has only been a few weeks since they made their uh, proclamation that they would not sell to anyone under the age of 21. They've already had a lawsuit filed against them, I believe in Oregon, um, based upon age discrimination, because the law says that you have to be 18. Mm -hmm. So they're making an arbitrary decision based upon age, and this lawsuit has already been filed, to my understanding. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Tony Bernardo, the executive director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association and Ed Berlew, criminal lawyer, who handles the most prominent gun-related uh, cases in this country where average Joes and Janes find themselves facing a uh, terrifying situation where their home is either being invaded or their property is being attacked or they are in, about to be attacked. The police aren't going to get there in time to protect them, so they're legally all registered firearms owners, so what do they reach for? Potentially, they reach for their firearms because they're trying to protect themselves and those around them. And are those people inevitably and invariably going to be in serious trouble, or does it depend, is it a subjective game, and it depends on who the Crown Attorney is who's going to review the situation? It most definitely depends on who the Crown Attorney is. I had a case that uh, it takes months and months to resolve these. They resolved it by having the charges withdrawn, but a gentleman was in his house in uh, southwestern Ontario, he had a disagreement with his neighbor. Um, his neighbor was quite aggressive. And he goes back into his house, and five hours later, the neighbor's banging on the door, yelling, saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to come in, I'm going to kill you. And my client, who is try- worried, he calls up the cops, and he says, if that guy comes through the door and you don't stop him, I'm going to have to shoot him. And so the cops came, and... Well, of course, the guy saw the cops coming, and it took about 20 minutes. And uh, so they came in, and they charged my guy with threatening death. And they took all my guy's guns. And all he's doing is saying, 
I'm terrified. There's a guy coming through my door. He's threatening to kill me. And I have a gun. It's legal. I'm going to protect myself. Yeah, and he just and he he said that on a nine one one call. He didn't even get the guns out of the safe. Quite frankly, they came in. They're all locked up, and so the cops had him unlock him, charged him, and one crown attorney said, "Well, your client's crazy, and we're going to have to prohibit him from having guns and put him in jail for a couple of months." Well, I kept working on it. And I got another crown attorney who said, "Your guy did the right thing. We're dropping the charges. He gets his guns back." Now, was this in the obviously the same jurisdiction? Yeah, they work in the same office, same courthouse. So there's there's no specific and no uh, reliable uh, definitive legislation that that demands you'll be handled in this manner if you threaten or not threaten, but if you determine to use a firearm to defend yourself. Um, it depends on the the crown attorney. Well, how do you guy, operate under those circumstances? Well, my my guy actually, you know, I, I did an argument for the Crown, I pointed out using police notes and everything, exactly why my guy was acting absolutely within the law. And the one Crown attorney says, well, I don't care about that, I don't like this. And was trying to impose his own law, as some officers do, too. But the other Crown attorney said, well, you're right, your client acted within the law, and that's fine. So there, there is prejudice, a lot of prejudice, and well, you know, it, it it takes a while to get through it. Sometimes you have to go through a trial to get through it. You know, sometimes it seems to me, I've almost thought that maybe the sensible law would be if the police can't get to you quickly enough to protect you and you are found to have been in really serious personal danger and your life was being threatened, then you're entitled to use whatever level of force you feel is required to protect you so that you're not worried about, boy, if I protect my wife and my kids by using my legally owned firearm, then I'm going to be in jail for a long period of time. So you wouldn't have to worry about that. If the police aren't there, you're entitled to protect yourself. I guess it's a version of the Castle Doctrine. Well, when you put it in the way you just put it, that is the law. You can, when you are threatened with bodily harm, meet that force with force and you too are judged at this on the same level that the police are judged on if they apply their sense and the fact of the matter is that you know somebody's 10 feet away from you with a screwdriver and he says i'm going to get you well an officer would barely have time to draw their gun and shoot him and by god you could too there is no difference you are your own first responder Mm-hmm. Well, I love the story that, uh, I mean, that just sort of metaphorically, but it's a story about your, one of your clients had ordered a BB gun through the mail. I saw this in uh, LawyerMag.com. And the police intercepted the gun before it was delivered, and they determined it was a replica. And so they took him to jail. He was charged and jailed without bail. That's when you entered the picture and you took care of it. But this poor guy spent 100 days in jail. For having a BB gun. Yeah, I, I got into that case later, and um, the first lawyer didn't do, didn't understand how to handle it. I got in there, and about four or five days later, he's out. But it took a lot of pushing and crushing yeah. because the 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 miss. Uh, you're talking about the categorization of firearms. They're miscategorized by the police and the crown attorneys on a constant basis, and that's what worries me about. Goodale's new uh, 
legislation that he's talking about to put that firmly back in the hands of police. Uh, that's not how things should be. And you have the two situations in, 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 in Western Canada, one in Alberta, one in B.C., where the homeowners used a firearm to want to protect his property, and he did shoot one of the individuals alleged to be stealing from him in the arm. And the other homeowner fired over the heads of the, uh, as I understand it, of the people who were invading his property. The, the Alberta home, the rancher uh, is facing criminal charges, and the British Columbia homeowner, is, as the Crown has said, there will be no charges. So. That, see, that's where it is the discretion of the police and discretion mm-hmm. of the Crown attorney. And, you know, the guy who doesn't have to face the charges, you know, he'll keep his money in his pocket and be able to sleep at night. And the other guy, his life's going to get ruined. He's going to be drained of money. He's going to go through two years of, of, of just terrible stress. And it doesn't relieve the fact that the police didn't put forth the effort to protect them. And that effort means that they have to have patrols, they have to have quicker response time. That's the effort that's needed. And that, that's what a civilized society expects. Yeah. Tony, I have one more question for you, and it's going to lead into my next interview in a way. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, they've been particularly vilified over the last number of weeks. Uh, advertisers have pulled uh, and, and ended their involvement with the NRA. You're, are you a member of the NRA? Yes, I am. Okay, and you too, eh, Ed? Yes, I am. It's an entirely volunteer organization. Yes. Um, is the NRA suffering, and what is the NRA's real job? <laughs> are, they, are, they, are they really the guys, the, the bad guys? No, absolutely not. The, the NRA is an advocacy group for lawful firearms owners, um, are they suffering? Their membership has risen half a million members in the last three weeks. Is there a real problem with gun ownership in the United States, Tony, with the ease with which you can acquire a firearm? Um, in terms of ease, no, I, I really don't think so. I mean, their background checks that they have when per- someone purchases a firearm are uh, pretty stringent. They have some problems that are systemic. Uh, but I think the real problem with school shootings in the United States is, quite frankly, the notoriety that the media gives every one of these people who seems to think that the world needs to know their story. Gentlemen, I thank you for joining us. Uh, Tony Bernardo, Ed Berlew. We'll talk again, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Sure. Gun ownership. In the United States, after the Florida, the horrific Florida shooting, and uh, it's not the first time, and it won't be the last time that we hear about Florida shootings. And uh, there's fallout this time, though, as the students, and particularly high school students across America, are making their voices heard and are demanding significant change as far as the availability of firearms is concerned. So the question then becomes, for some, are U.S. sporting goods retailers like Dick's and gun manufacturers like Remington about to face financial hard times because of this U.S.-wide student movement demanding the tougher gun purchasing legislation. Uh, A Washington Post story, by the way, suggests that so far Dix hasn't suffered all that much, but they are 26% down uh, this year over where they were last year at this particular time. Joining me is Chuck Tattlebaum. He's a director and chair of the Florida law firm Trip Scott's 
Creditor Rights and Bankruptcy Practices Group. Mr. Tattlebaum, thank you very much for the time. I, I imagine there's not much that you haven't seen when it comes to bankruptcy and financial distress situations for the corporate world. Is the situation involving Dix and Remington, uh, is that directly traceable to the student protest? I, I don't think it is yet, but it is compounded by it. And just keep in mind, I am right now 10 miles from the, where the Parkland shooting was. And so it's sort of like the epicenter of everything that's going on. Uh, what, what we're seeing is, is Dix may have miscalculated what they did when they made the announcement about restricting their gun sales. They were applauded by many people, but people then didn't go to Dix to shop because of it. But what did happen is all of the gun enthusiasts staged a boycott, and they've stopped going to Dick's to shop. So Dick's is showing, uh, within the last two weeks, a market decrease in its store volume. At the same time, and maybe coincidental or not, Remington, the rifle manufacturer, has announced it will be filing Chapter 11, which is the reorganization of U.S. bankruptcy law, and Dix has offered, has issued a profit warning for the future. And one last thing, this follows the bankruptcy of the Colt Firearms Company in the United States. So this is not something that we would have expected to see. This is not something that would have been uh, been predicted as, as happening. And yet here it is. Remington is one of the big, old, solid names in, in, uh, in rifle and gun manufacturing. It is. And I, I've been doing bankruptcy work for 52 years, and I've learned not to be trite, but I don't believe in coincidences. And for Remington to announce now, with everything that's going on in the U.S., that it is seeking bankruptcy protection for no apparent reason, and then you have all of the retailers in the U.S. <clears throat> that have uh, restricted gun sales showing market decreases in, in traffic and volume, I think there is a, d a distinct correlation. So this was a, do you think it was a visceral reaction by Dix and by other uh, retailers to step forward and say, we're going to change the rules, our rules, as far as you're buying firearms in our facilities, in our buildings is concerned? It was a visceral reaction rather than a, than a planned and thought out reaction. I think it may be, but in the U.S. There, there's been a lot of uh, stockholder reaction you have a lot of funds, retirement funds, of school systems, hospital systems, and states that have invested in companies like Dix and Walmart, and they have been putting tremendous pressure, uh, which counters the NRA, on having the retailers do the so-called right thing. Are there other tentacles that are spreading out from the decisions made by, by Dix and, and the response, the reaction of the students across the United States, the tentacles that are affecting the business community? Well, uh, Delta Airlines, which also uh, terminated its discount relationship with uh, the NRA, uh, has shown a little bit of backlash. Uh, it's too early to measure because with Delta people book in advance, but the NRA folks have said they will boycott Delta because of their Delta's termination of the discount with the NRA. So I think there will be a domino effect, as we have seen in most bankruptcy situations.
All right. Now, so Remington's is ready to uh, Remington is ready to uh, to file for Chapter Eleven protection. Um, are there other gun manufacturers that are in a similar position or headed in that direction? Well, we we don't know um, what has happened in the U.S. and especially in Florida, which is amazing. There has been since the Parkland shooting, which was just a month ago, a tremendous increase in the purchase of uh, semi-automatic weapons and automatic pistols because those who want them think there may be restrictions coming, so there's been a total surge in purchasing. I think it's a one-time surge, which has benefited the manufacturers, but there may be a backlash now that those people have purchased. Well, it certainly was a a horrific, horrific reality that struck the hearts of, uh, of everyone, whether you were thousands of miles away, as I am, or... Uh, very close by as you are, Mr. Tattlebaum. I thank you very much for joining us and speaking to us about this, uh, the economic response and the economic uh, the fallout. Uh, Chuck Tattlebaum is a director and chair of the Florida law firm Trip Scott uh, Creditors Rights and Bankruptcy Practice Group. Thanks again for the time. My pleasure. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Vivian Krause told us on this program that American foundations and American interests are pouring huge amounts of money into Canada and providing them to anti-pipeline organizations. Meanwhile, organizations in this country, like 30 communities, First Nations communities, who want to see the uh, Spirit Eagle pipeline built, which is a $16 billion project, have gone to GoFundMe.com in order to raise some money to deal with the regulators and to deal with Ottawa. We'll talk to Calvin Helene in just a minute, uh, son of a hereditary chief in British Columbia. He is also the chairman of the Spirit Eagle project, pipeline project. Meanwhile, on Burnaby Mountain, where there's a permanent injunction uh, as far as getting close to the gates of the Kinder Morgan operation for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, there the protest uh, has begun. We've been talking to our colleagues at CKNW and Global News about what's developing this afternoon, and joining us now to uh, give us the latest is Kyle Benning, uh, Global News reporter. Kyle, uh, what what are you seeing now? What's going on? Well, it's more of the same uh, since you've last heard from our colleagues here. About two dozen people are sitting in front of the gate at the Burnaby Terminal. Uh, that we're working to be done for the Trans Mountain expansion. Uh, there are uh, a handful of police officers further down the road, and we've just gotten word that uh, some action, or some new actions, are going to be taking place. Uh, the protesters have said they're going to do something that they think would get them arrested. So get attention, get attention, get attention. How many more protesters are expected? Does anybody have any 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 idea? Uh, from what we've heard, it doesn't sound like anybody else is going to be joining these two dozen. There are a handful of people just showing their support uh, outside of the injunction zone, which is set at five meters. As you mentioned, that uh, permanent injunction was handed down this week. It was at 50 meters two weeks ago, but um, there are uh, a handful of people, maybe another two dozen, uh, Mm -hmm. just outside of that zone, but uh, we're going to have to wait and see what happens, whether more people come and join, uh, whether more action is taken, and uh, what police will do if if further action is taken. Yeah, it's a big big change in numbers from last week. Definitely, yeah. I know we saw about 5,000 people uh, march around this area last week. Of course, uh, not breaking the injunction, that was 50 meters, but uh, not not as big of a crowd, but uh, it seems like they're some of them are willing to get arrested. 
That being said, um, even though there are only two dozen here, uh, people have come from across the country to be here. We've spoken to people from Manitoba, from Alberta, from Vernon, uh, further north in BC. So um, people are still pretty, pretty feel pretty strongly towards this project. I'm sure. Kyle, thank you so much for the time. Good afternoon, Roy. Kyle Benning from Global News, joining us from uh, Burnaby Mountain. And now with me is Calvin Helene. He's the chairman of the Spirit Eagle Pipeline Project. And we spoke with uh, Mr. Helene a few weeks ago about the uh, about the project. And it's a $16 billion effort to uh, that they want to get underway. And, uh, Calvin, good to have you back. And I was surprised at uh, how quickly you told us that the the pipeline could be operational if you were to see the green light. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Roy. We've been working on this for five years. Um, the First Nations in, in B.C. don't have treaties, and so the way the law works is they have considerable constitutional power over what happens with resource projects. And as an Indigenous person, um, we decided to get involved with the chiefs um, in this project because uh, they, they are looking for ways that uh, they can basically create an economy for themselves. A lot of the, um, the uh, activity that everybody hears about uh, from our area is created by, by American environmental groups. They're funding local environmental groups coming into our territory they're creating all kinds of uh, all kinds of um, problems in the community divisions and families they they come in and they do destabilization programs similar to the CIA and and other organizations that go into other countries and they hold up people in the communities a lot of times as puppets and props um, that are on their payroll, and it's not right. The proper chiefs in the community have a have a greater responsibility than trying to look out for their bottom line. The more they their business model is, the more they stop, the more money they raise. And Vivian Krauss is absolutely right about about the monies coming into Canada from the U.S. It's 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 uh, extraordinary and. It really is kind of um, sad that our own population should be so apathetic when estimates are, one of the estimates I've heard of the discounts on our LNG and oil per per uh, day is possibly up to $75 million a day when, um, well, we haven't been able to build any pipelines, the Americans where this money is coming from, have built 20,000 kilometers, roughly, of pipeline, I understand. And um, in, in the, uh, the Vancouver Sun here recently, there's an article about BC pension funds investing in an in LNG project in Texas, which is directly competing with our own resources and our own corporations. This whole thing doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And the chiefs in their communities have to worry about um, always their concern will be the environment, but once the environment, environmental issues are taken care of, they are prepared to look at 
at uh, resource development. Well, the Americans, uh, they're looking at the money that they're pouring into Canada and uh, providing for organizations that, that challenge the Canadian pipelines. They're looking uh, that would export money or take take the, take the oil to the, to the ports and then export it to Southeast Asia and other parts of the world where it's wanted. Uh, they're looking at that oil as their own and because they're getting it so cheaply at such a tremendous discount. And for them, it's just a, a, a sensible investment to be able to, uh, you know, fund Canadian groups that are anti-pipeline. Meanwhile, what I found really interesting and, and, and disturbing is that you're talking about 30 communities, indigenous communities in British Columbia that are impoverished, and their chiefs are saying, and they've cited and they've, they've signed on for the uh, Eagle Spirit Pipeline, understanding uh, clearly the economic benefits that would come to their communities if the pipeline is built, which makes absolute sense because it serves two purposes. It helps the Canadian economy. It helps the, uh, the communities. It eventually helps everyone because the world wants the oil. So the chiefs in these communities uh, now find themselves, and this is almost humiliating, uh, Calvin, having to go to GoFundMe.com to raise funds, as I understand it, to, uh, to be able to um, you know, make presentations before regulatory bodies, federally and the federal government, while their opponents are getting money shipped across the border to them. Yeah, not only that, uh, we're having to take, the, take on a cashed-up federal government that uh, is insistent on putting this oil tanker moratorium act in place in northern B.C., when oil is allowed to be shipped everywhere else in Canada, we've just, uh, the government said they were doing this for um, environmental and scientific reasons. We've found, a, uh, we've just come across a very detailed study um, that was done by the, at the time, the Federal uh, Fisheries Department and the Ministry of Environment which evaluated all of the ports on the coast for the, for the most safest, least riskiest place to bring oil into or out of. This was done 40 years ago, but, but the, uh, the um, reasons and, the, and some of the conditions that they looked at are even stronger now than they were 40 years ago. And the place that we're looking to put our port was rated the absolute least risky place in, in, uh, in, on the coast in, in northern British Columbia. And uh, instead, what our, our, our chiefs are uh, coming to the conclusion that we're getting our policy made by American NGOs, and they're trying to ram this stuff down our throats, well... They make parks in our backyard and use Canadian uh, resources to, to keep for a rainy day for, for Americans. What are we doing about it? You know, it, it, it is absolutely unbelievable that uh, we would allow this to go on. And it's not as though, it's not as though the Eagle Spirit uh, pipeline is just a concept that's in the thinking stage. You are, you're ready to go. We've got five years of hard work. Uh, we have an environmental model that is far more robust than is being proposed by the federal government under its ocean protections plan. We've, we've invested in this. And, um, you know, as a, as a Canadian, 
my my uh, question is, are are we sovereign or not? And and if we are, why are we allowing these organizations to distort our supposedly sovereign right to make public policy in natural resources for the benefit of Canadians? You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Back with Calvin Helene, the chairman of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline proposal, $16 billion plan in uh, in British Columbia. Calvin, before I ask you about the geography, the topography, and, and everything else that's involved, and I'm sure you're going to be quizzed from top to bottom, back to front, over and over by the regulatory uh, process, but the question is often this. What's the point in investing in pipelines? Because green energy is the future. And you've told me that it's a $16 billion venture, the uh, Eagle Spirit pipeline. The opponents of the pipelines who say, don't spend the money now, you're wasting it, uh, they'll tell you that that's a $16 billion failed investment. My reply is, it's not your money. You, it doesn't matter what you think. It's not your money. But what do you say to that to that position that you're just wasting money? Well, I mean, as a um, as a First Nations person, um, I'm as um, environmental as anybody else. But uh, I we have to have common sense about it. How has that worked out in Ontario, where a whole bunch of environmental policies? were introduced leaving Ontario Hydro with a $30 billion bill and ordinary people paying $3,500 a month for, for hydro. The same thing is played out in Germany. The um, Angela Merkel was almost unable to, to form a government because uh, the Green Party wanted to shut down uh, 22 of the coal-fired plants. Now, everybody is sympathetic about that, but it's so expensive mm-hmm. to uh, to try to um, introduce uh, large-scale green power at this point. Um, they're concerned about their the competitiveness of of our, their economy. I mean, we are sitting on a natural resource that anybody else in the world would um, would be absolutely over the moon to to have, and. It is very important to Canada. It's, I understand it's about 10% of our GDP, and I understand uh, in the last federal budget why there was more money in the budget is because the price of oil was higher than, than it was previously. It, 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 we have to be, uh, in, in my opinion, practical about it. Uh, I don't think anybody's saying um, let's be completely anti-efficient um, uh, alternative energy, we, we have to phase it in and, and just to completely turn our back on, on an endowment that we have, an endowment that's allowed uh, Norway, for example, to put $1 trillion in the bank for the future generations. It, it, it's crazy. It is. And isn't it sixty about $60 million a day that flows through that pipeline or would flow through that pipeline? Uh, you, you mean our Eagle Spirit pipeline? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure of the number, but it would be significant. And and we 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 not only have a um, um, a pipeline for oil. The chiefs have voted to have an energy corridor, mm-hmm. and 
and Asia wants our LNG. Asia want uh, the uh, China. I was in China not too long ago. And, and Calvin, and, I I only have twenty seconds left. Okay. So we'll we'll talk again, um, but I also want to remind people it's GoFundMe.com, Chiefs Council Against Bill C-48, GoFundMe.com, Chiefs Council Against Bill C-48, or go to ShannonStubbsMP.ca, and you can navigate your way to the petitions. Thanks, Calvin. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again, and there's lots to talk about. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.